0: Hey, everyone. For today's episode, Courtney and I spoke with Nicola Ulibarri, an assistant professor in the Department of Urban Planning and Public Policy at the University of California, Irvine. Nicola is from Taos, New Mexico, and we started our conversation by talking about how her background has shaped her future work. I have a particular interest in Taos since this is where I conducted my dissertation fieldwork on the traditional Aseki irrigation systems there way back in the day. From there, we spent most of our conversation talking about Nicola's work on collaborative governance and water management plans in the Central Valley of California. Here, Nicola has been studying the ability of a variety of such plans, including integrated regional water management plans, urban water management plans, and groundwater sustainability plans to address climate change and social equity. During our conversation, we ended up talking about the nature of such formal plans, asking what are they actually used for and by whom? If they require so much effort, what is their actual role in governance? Finally, we talked a bit about one of the best figures I've seen in a long time, in which Nicola and her colleagues depict essentially a social ecological system, consisting of a set of aquifers, rivers, and all the actors that interact with them and with each other. We'll link to this in the show notes, so be sure to check that out after the episode. This is the In Common Podcast. So there's, I'm realizing actually as we start this that uh, all three of us have some connections with each other. Uh, so I work at Dartmouth, Courtney went to Dartmouth, uh, Courtney is currently a postdoc at Stanford and Nicola you went to Stanford as a PhD student and then... Uh, Nicola, I would like to start the conversation with the connection that I realized that you and I both realized we had with each other. That you are from Taos, New Mexico, which is where uh, I did my PhD field work. Uh, what feels like many, many moons ago. And um, yeah, I would I would love to start our conversation just by talking to you about. Uh, how you feel your life in kind of rural New Mexico influenced your career path subsequently. It's been a theme that we've noticed among many of our guests that that, there is a strong relationship there. Um, Formative experiences with people in the environment is is a common theme. So I'd love to start by hearing your version of that. Um, How do you make sense of your upbringing and how it contributed to you being where you are now?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. And it actually is something often when people ask me, oh, well, you know, why do you do what you do? That I start with, well, I grew up in northern New Mexico. And it's, as you say, a very rural small town and um, a place that is, I think, really shaped deeply by a lack of water and by a multicultural engagement with the environment. So, you know, it's high desert mountains. My parents both worked at the ski resort there. There's a big ski, it's a big ski town. And basically the entire economy is shaped by if it's a good snow year during the winter. And if it's a dry winter, then we have a dry summer and there's not good rafting and there's lots of wildfires and there's not good farming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, just the, the whole town is, very very visibly dependent on water and the other piece of it is that there's three strong cultures there so there's a longstanding Hispanic population like my own family um, there is a large Native American population Taos Pueblo and a more recent but um, very prominent Anglo population and all three of those groups have a slightly different relationship to the environment um, and how, you know, think thinking about, well, do we, do we manage the environment? Do we control the environment? Do we live with the environment as another actor in this space? And so I think for me growing up, seeing some of the interesting conflicts that those different pers- sort of perspectives raised really got me interested in thinking about, okay, how do we How do we go about solving environmental problems and and really understanding the key role that people play in that um yeah so actually when i started in undergrad i was an anthropology major and so you know really trying to understand the the link of culture in the human to environment relationship
0: so uh, my follow-up question which you've started to answer is you know, did you need to get away from the space and then come back to make sense of some of this, but it sounds like you were also observing it growing up when you talk about conflicts among the different groups. Um, I mean, when I was there, I was formally studying these acequia systems. So -hmm. the Hispanic acequia systems, and I was told actually to kind of avoid the whole, is it the abeta case, which was between.
1: Oh, which is still a mess. Yes.
0: Yeah, this water rights adjudication run by the New Mexico Office of the State Engineer, which was going on for, what, 40 plus years to try to Mm -hmm. formally decide who gets how much water when, all within the, the doctrine of prior appropriation, which adds on this additional layer of deciding like, okay, these people started in this year, these other people started in that year. When you talk about conflicts among the different groups growing up, is that partly what you're referring to is related to that adjudication? Was it more just kind of general?
1: It was more kind of general conflicts. So I mean there were conflicts around water, certainly, in terms of you know, some concerns about the acequias versus water right, you know, versus water for the, the Pueblo, let's say, or also seeing, you know, hearing about conflicts of oh, Colorado is keeping too much water. They're they have, you know, there's they're not sending the water down across the border. And you know, so it was it was. Things that people talked about for sure. Um, and then also things around conflicts over the forests, for instance, around whether we should allow grazing in the national forests, or actually the national forests should should belong to the Pueblo, or they should be land grants that we, you know, Hispanic families used to own. And you know, there's there a lot of conversation about, you know, who rightfully should be controlling the, the, the land and the space and the water. Um, the Sequia, sorry, the Abeta case that you bring up though is still very much playing out. So it was resolved a few years ago. I don't remember exactly what year, um, but I'm actually on the board for a nonprofit based out of Taos, and we're still thinking through, okay, how do we how do we tackle certain pieces of of Abeta and how it's affecting in-stream flows and how it's affecting, yeah habitat and water rights and many, many pieces. So yeah, there are those very formal conflicts as well.
0: And I should tell people um, and it it feels awkward to tell people in front of you who knows this better than I do that an acequia is both uh, it's an irrigating community of farmers and it's also the name for uh, an actual irrigation ditch. And these are earthen ditches. So these are very traditional systems that are not traditionally high tech and actually that's been some of the tension that I saw there between the more traditional lower tech ways of irrigating. And particularly when we're actually, I've seen some of the Seikia's in, in Colorado as well. And there the tension felt even stronger because Colorado had more resources to implement some of their water rights doctrines. So there is this long standing tension between the Seikia systems and the, and the state, it seems like. Did you grow up like, feeling like you were in a particular Esekia community? I just have to ask these kinds of questions. So
1: I, where I grew up, we actually didn't have an Esekia that extended all the way to our, our land. Um, My parents had another piece of land that was closer to town that was, was on an Esekia. And we did, you know, go and clean the ditch and things every year. Um, But it was, since it wasn't right where we lived, um, that wasn't as central, I guess, to my identity as many other people's. Okay. Um, since I moved away, my parents actually moved into town. And so now, you know, on that that parcel of land. And so they're um and they've become much more, much more engaged with the And My dad served as chairman for a number of years. And yeah, so getting to actually manage the who got water and how do we maintain, maintain the system and all of that. Um,
2: so, gotta yes. be careful. Cause I see Michael's about to spend the rest of the interview asking about your dad's I'm having experience. a moment.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to resist. Yeah. I'm trying to resist the <laughs> urge. I mean, no. So, so before we leave the Tao section of the interview, because I know I get a little bit more, uh, mm-hmm. have you thought about going back to do research, field work, et cetera, you're on this nonprofit, you're, you could presumably do something.
1: Yeah. I'm always toying with how to get, so, yeah, I'm always toying with how to extend my research back there. And actually, originally, when I was starting my Ph.D., I was very seriously looking at doing work um, in Colorado and New Mexico and then sort of ended up falling into a, a different a different project that revolves around large hydropower dams. And large hydropower dams, you need more water than we have in, on the Rio Grande. And so... Um, ended up working elsewhere and since then have really built out my California work. But it's always kind of in the back of my head around okay, what can I come up with that'll be something comparative perhaps or that I can get get back home. Um and I'm up for tenure this coming year. So knock on wood, if that all goes well, then I'll have perhaps a little bit more flexibility to do whatever I want.
2: Can I ask a question on that? Yeah. This is going to stay in New Mexico, don't worry. Um okay. <laughs> the case you talked about um, is it a beta? A
1: beta settlement.
2: Yeah. Did that? So I remember reading about one at some point. Did that deal with water to the ski as well, or was that a different case?
1: So it's water essentially to kind of everyone in in town. So the the big the big conflict was essentially between the pueblo and the acequias and so it was essentially determining for the, the winter's water for the pueblo, how much what was their actual allocation under the treaty. Um, that of course was way more than what the acequias and the other other water users in town were willing to live with. And so that's what what spurred the lawsuit in the first place. Um, so it was essentially a, a settlement looking at okay how much how can we get more water to the Pueblo while not taking too much water away from um, all of these other uses and it's turned into a very very complicated there's the, the actual water right settlement but then there's also all these things around okay we're going to be using groundwater pumping to offset the surface water allocations which then of course gets really really messy and yeah so it's it's very much still working its way through you know there's the legal settlement that has been approved but the actual implementation now is it's interesting to watch from afar. Sounds
2: like it <laughs> sounds like a mess.
0: Yeah. I remember when I was there in 2007, I was basically told like, if you want to finish your dissertation, like don't focus on the Abeta case. This is going to be, it's a hornet's nest. that's not going to end for a while. So I, it felt mm-hmm. awkward because I knew it was like this big important thing, but it didn't appear in anything that I wrote ever pretty much. Um. Mm-hmm. Okay, so leaving New Mexico, you went out east to yeah. this, uh, I think it's called Harvard. I think yes. I've heard of it, yeah. And then you, so you studied, I'm, I'm looking at your CV right now, uh, evolutionary biology. And so is, is that a bit of um, a switch for you? Because, and that's also, I mean, I'm trying not to project onto you unfairly trends that I think I've also seen in other guests where there's this move towards ecology, evolution, and then they kind of see the light
1: so I was actually I was I was, my major is social anthropology. Oh. And okay. then I added the biology minor actually okay. because I missed also doing science. Um and I, so social anthropology, you know, really understanding the cultural piece as I said but of the human nature relationship. Um and then was also taking all these biology classes I'm like well I might as well add Fair enough add a major or a minor there. And I actually remember having an interesting conversation with my thesis advisor, um, that when I told her that I was doing this minor as well. And she was like, Oh, why would you do that? Just like, surprise, like what, what value could biology ever add? Like, well, you're an environmental anthropologist. <laughs> like, I don't understand what, what the, you know, but just that not this I've always had a real drive to, to do interdisciplinary work and that you need to be able to understand all these different pieces if we're really going to solve environmental problems. But that was, I think one of the first sort of first senses that that was not the normal way to go about things perhaps.
0: Yeah. I mean, that ties into this, uh, topic of interdisciplinarity. I think sometimes because I've drunk the Kool-Aid so thoroughly, I mean, a lot of these, there's a lot of interdisciplinary discourse, um, and sometimes I forget until I'm kind of really reminded that there's a lot of people that don't want to be interdisciplinary and they feel kind of threatened slash offended uh, or encroached upon. If you're like, Hey, why don't we like think about th- things this way? Like, why would you want to do that? Et cetera. And like, I mean, I've heard stuff like that in the last year or two, it's like not something that's gone away,
1: mm-hmm. but you
0: can forget about it when like we're all talking to It's like, yeah, don't you want to kind of all hold hands and like be happy? Um, okay. So, You were in the Northeast, and then you actually went to Oxford for a bit. It looks like, yes, and then for your masters. And we can talk about that if you like. But then I see that you you went actually out. You went back west, the U.S. West, for your PhD at Stanford, and you got your PhD in Environment and Resources from that program. And one question I have for you is, I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of my PhDs only in that like the name of it doesn't really provide a strong identifier for who the person is or what they call themselves. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about a focus on, uh, anthropology. Have you ever tried calling yourself an anthropologist? anthropologist? I'll put it that way.
1: I, um, I think if you had asked me in the first year of my PhD, I still would have identified as an anthropologist. Um, And just for for reference, my master's degree was in geography. So also this large human geography, but large nebulous and not super (laughs) well-defined discipline. Um, And I, I think where I identify as an anthropologist is identifying with a deep understanding that you need to talk to people who are involved in a system if you're going to make any claims about that system. So the, the sort of core value of ethnography essentially as a method. Um, I At this point, if you force me to claim a discipline, it would be most likely actually public administration. So you say public affairs, um, that's the discipline that I most commonly publish in and go to conferences for. Um, and, and I also have done you know, a number of classes in, or some training in sort of planning, as well as in civil and environmental engineering. Um, But I wouldn't, yeah, I guess, and planning, I do claim also just because I'm in a department of urban planning and public policy. And so I'm not a planner. And my colleagues will tell you that I'm, you know, I'm not a, a dyed in the wool planner, but that is definitely a language that I hear a lot.
0: Okay, no, that is helpful. You, you, you framed it in the way that it, you kind of saved me the step of, of asking you, like, if you had to choose, like, how would you do it? Because that's the only way you can usually get someone to actually be like, OK, well, if, if... so um, so you're at Stanford. and Is that when you started to get focused on the research program that you're focused on now on work in the Central Valley? Or was it in a different area? It sounds like it was starting to be about water, hydropower, et cetera. So can you talk to us about your dissertation and how that was like the next step for you?
1: Yes, yeah, so my dissertation, I was looking at collaborative governance of hydropower dams and kind of fell onto the project in that I was interested in trying to find, looking at policymaking processes, linking policymaking processes to their outcomes and something about water. That was kind of the big vision when I started my PhD. And I ended up hearing about dam removal as this phenomenon that was growing in popularity. Um, and it sounded, it was really interesting and in thinking about, okay, well, we've got all this infrastructure and it's old and maybe not serving a purpose that it was intended to. And, you know, how do we make those decisions? Um, and I ended up finding out that in the U S there's FERC, the federal energy regulatory commission ends up actually they kind of initiate a lot of dam removals because you have a dam that's been around for 50 years. It needs a new license. They go through the relicensing process and realize, hey, to actually bring it up to speed for new environmental regulations or to install fish passage or anything like that, it's too expensive. The value of the power isn't worth it. Let's just take out the dam. So... I ended up actually, though, not focusing just on dam removal, but focusing more generally on this FERC process as a lens to understand collaborative governance. So thinking about if you have the dam owner and operator really working jointly with government agencies, nonprofits, businesses to make these decisions versus making them more unilaterally, do we see better environmental outcomes, better balancing of power versus fish and recreation and flood control and all these other interests. Um, and so that, that was what I ended up focusing in on for my dissertation.
0: Okay. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it surprises me to hear you talk about, I mean, cause I'm aware that there is this kind of d- um, dam removal movement in the U S um, but I didn't know that. Did you say that m- many to most of the dams that get removed are removed because of this, is administrative Many
1: of the larger dams that get removed there are a ton of really small dams that are you know small stock pond type dams or you know smaller smaller water supply dams that end up being removed more because they've been abandoned or there's a safety concern or things like that so I don't remember the exact numbers but the vast majority of the several thousand dams that have been removed in the US are, smaller dams that don't produce hydropower um, okay. but of the larger dams that are hydropower dams the the FERC regulatory process is sort of usually
0: where it starts that's interesting mm-hmm. and so you were focusing on this approach of collaboration mm-hmm. and to me collaboration is one of these words that you kind of have to like it's like no one's going to be like well no i actually i my hypothesis is that the less collaboration they're better and it reminds me of other words that I've heard in my sphere like polycentric or adaptive or adaptive co-management. There's like these, this nest of keywords mm-hmm. that gets thrown around. Um, and I think my concern with some of them is they start to feel like they're being treated as panaceas. Like we're kind of saying, well, as long as you're collaborative, then things are going to work out. And big surprise, we see lots of thought pieces about how these things are the way we need to go. But then when the rubber hits the road, what we mean by collaborative in an abstract PDF is not ultimately what ends up happening on the ground a lot of the time when politics and policy actually are implemented.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, what you're saying is exactly actually the motivation for my dissertation in that there's so much that says, oh, collaboration is fabulous, basically. And I wanted to know, well, is it actually, how do we, you know, and so it was coming up with ways to actually operationalize. Clap. What do we mean by collaboration? How do we say this is high collaboration, this is low collaboration? And then actually comparing those and seeing, well, do they come up with different different decisions, different ways of managing these dams? Hmm. Um, yeah. It's I, funny. I,
2: oh, keep, go ahead. I'll, yeah, I'll I was discuss. just
1: going to say, I, I think that's kind of been a, a, a theme more generally in my research is like we, we assume that things are good. And it's like, well, show me the evidence. I want to actually see, see the empirics essentially behind that.
2: I was just going to say as a follow-up to Michael's question or framing of that, it's funny how like the, you know, it's right. The way we think about collaborative, almost like you just said is, is this positive, like fuzzy, warm feeling and the opposite of that, you know, either consulting or more of a top down process. I can't think of a single term for that is a feel good, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it's just automatically
1: control. or Right. Right.
2: It's, it's like just set up to be that that's wrong and this is right. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think that this sort of goes deeper into thinking about the last, you know, 50 years on how policy has evolved. Right. And, and what we want to see, but also this idea that you started with that, um, you know, we really need to think about people need to be involved in the process and having the right people involved in the process. But when I think about hydropower and FERC, you know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like, I think of, you know, steel and concrete, and I don't think about people. <laughs> um, I, and I'd just be curious to hear more on like, on the, what, so what did you see in the, in terms of collaboration and who was collaborating and what happened in that process?
1: Yeah, So I, um, a lot of my work was actually looking retrospectively at, so using documents and meeting minutes and things to sort of recreate what had happened, who was in the room, um, for sort of existing hydropower dams around the country. Um, and then I also actually sat in on two ongoing negotiations over dams in the central Valley and, um, there it, I mean, you see just lot, very, a lot of very different dynamics essentially. And so in some cases where the hydropower utility was very open to working with lots of other people and, um, you know, opening up, bringing on a, a third party facilitator to make them, help them run the process in as neutral and creative a way as possible. And you had you know, pretty active representation by a lot of different federal agencies and state agencies and by local fishing groups and local, you know, American rivers and Trout Unlimited and those types of groups, Um, some with big business interests, some with pretty big tribal representation. Um, And then you also had others where they said, oh, well, we're going to collaborate, but they very much controlled the conversation. So you still had those same people in the room, but they're okay. Here's what we've decided now. Give us some feedback on what we've decided. Um, And so it was, I think the dynamics, it wasn't so much differences in terms of who was in the room across all the different processes I looked at, except there were a couple that were like a small, very rural hydropower dam in Northern Georgia that, like there were only five people because it was very small and there weren't all that many interests but for the most part there were sort of this these same sets of groups the big difference is, is in the dynamics of who was essentially shaping the decisions and um if you had the fisheries folks really getting a say on how we should manage things or the recreation folks really having a say on how they should manage things or whether it was just the hydropower utility
2: interesting so So it seems like a a pretty big um, policy turn from what you described, right? With your, with your bachelor's and then your master's. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you've sort of stuck with that path, right? Very much so. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. I'm curious. Yes.
1: I think, I mean, pretty much everything I do now, there is a, some sort of federal or state regulation that is kind of a central, a, a centering point and then it's seeing how that regulation interacts in a complex social ecological system. So how how it's interpreted by people and how maybe it is too limiting for the complexities of the way a resource actually works or things like that. Yeah.
2: So then from the FERC work up. So, and FERC, it's the federal, I'm going to get this federal Federal energy
1: regulatory commission,
2: regulatory commission. Okay. Mm -hmm. So from the, the hydropower dam work to today, you know, more broadly looking at water planning and water planning processes, what has that evolution been like? And I should also say, so in that transition then too, you went from, um, Stanford to now UC Irvine, um, Mm -hmm. and you said you're in a public affairs, right. Public, urban planning
1: and public urban policy. Urban planning and public
2: policy. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about, maybe I'll frame this as two questions and then see where you go with it. So both the kind of transition in your work, but also maybe in your identity as a researcher that took you from, you know, this interdisciplinary natural resources school to an, an urban planning public affairs school. What has that been like?
1: Yeah, it's, it's been, I think... Interesting. Um, so essentially, with the my PhD, I was kind of a, a policy person or a social scientist in an environmental space. So you know, there's lots of people. Some folks coming from ecology, some folks coming from climate science, but we're all united by we were interested in the environment. And now I am in a still very interdisciplinary, all social sciences department with, I am one of a handful of environmental people. Um, And so it it has been an interesting shift um, in that I think before it was kind of talking about how important the people are. And now it's talking about how important the environment is um, when we're we're. In faculty meetings, let's say, or advocating for curricular developments, yeah.
2: it's like so a I transition that- from mm-hmm. what's a given. It's like the environment's a given, but you need people. Versus people are a given, but you need the environment. At least that's Basically, what it sounds yes. like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. then, so you so transitioning the work too with that has that, um, or maybe it's not a transition but an evolution. What has that been like into that department?
1: Into that department, so. Part of, I was really lucky, um, you know, and having with a faculty job, like search, you don't have a lot of flexibility usually in where you land. Um, I certainly didn't, Um, but I happened to end up in a department that is very, very interdisciplinary and very supportive of different faculty shaping what type of research we do. And so it's not, it's not a department that says, oh, well, you have to publish in these five journals or else it's a department that says, you tell us what the five journals are that you should be publishing based on what you work on. Um, so, cause there's folks who are sociologists and folks who are political scientists and folks who are economists, et cetera. Um, and so with that, I haven't honestly had to reshape my research too much to fit any particular profile. Um, other than I have, you know, it, I have had to pay conscious attention to trying to make sure I get out some more traditional sort of public policy, public administration type publications. Um, so I have at least that, that track record. I'm not just all publishing in interdisciplinary environmental journals. Um, where I really have, I think extended my research is now getting to do a lot more collaborative work so dissertation is very much a sort of sole, sole author thing, you know, you and maybe your advisors. Um, But now I am involved in a number of collaborations with engineers and natural scientists at Irvine, and also all over, you know, all over the state, all over the world, um, looking at different environmental problems. Um, So I have this, Project that we'll be talking a little bit more about that's looking at water management in the, in the Central Valley. And that's in collaboration with a number of hydrologists and climate scientists who are sort of understanding the, the physical side of water availability. Um, and then I'm looking at the, the management piece. Um, and then also, since coming to Southern California, um, there's a group, a large group of people who do some really great coastal management work. And so I've been adding in some, some coastal. <laughs> Stuff, um to thinking about okay well what happens when the rivers meet the sea essentially um to my portfolio as well
2: so let's jump into that work that you were talking about so the integrated water was it in, integrated water regional management plans or no integrated um, oh, regional yes. water sorry
1: yes. <laughs> I was well, water management planning more <laughs> generally yes
2: so did you start working on that um in your postdoc
1: so i actually that um is a it's a grant that i got that was my first year as a faculty member okay so uh, uh, about a year into work being down here at uci um and that's it's a big it's a uc lab fees program okay. so it's a university of california um, multi-campus grant
2: so i know california does that regional water management planning a little differently than others. So maybe could you talk a little bit about what that process looks like and what drew you to it?
1: Yes. So, um, the it's IRWIM or integrated regional water management planning. And this was, I want to say back in like 2002, 2003 was the initial statute that said we were going to start doing this. And the idea initially was similar to integrated water management that you see elsewhere that says we need to be managing our water more at a basin scale. Um, So, you know, coordinating activities among all of the actors within a watershed. Um, The way that it worked in California, though, was that the local watershed got to decide how big they wanted their region to be. And so rather than having a few large watershed groups forming and developing a collaborative plan, they instead fractured in a number of places. Um, And so we ended up with a lot more regions essentially than there are watersheds in the state. How it then works though, is that you had these groups, they got to decide essentially how they wanted to structure their decision-making. So some of them actually formed more of an organization that does the planning for that region. Um, Others made more of a collaborative group. So they have representation from water agencies and irrigation districts and, you know, whoever the various players are in that region. And then together they, write there usually every five years cycle, a new plan that says, you know, here are essentially the water water security priorities for our region. And here are some, prior, some projects that we want to work on to protect water security, water supply, uh, disadvantaged communities and the environment. Yeah.
2: So, and then it, um, you had this paper come out, I think last year, that mm-hmm. was like a case study comparison of some of those processes, as well as others, right? Um, I'm trying to think. It's like mm-hmm. it was like a collaborative governance across some, many of these different processes.
1: Yeah. So we were looking at yeah uh, the paper that you're you're referring to specifically that one. We're looking at in the Central Valley um, the Irwin Plan, but then also looking at several other types of plans. So, for instance, municipal water utilities have to write urban water management plans. Irrigation districts have to write agricultural water management plans. There's all these, you know, um, so there's all these different plans and they're kind of similar in that for the most part, it's they're looking at, okay, what is our current water supply? What is our projected growth in demand looking forward? And what are the activities that we can do to perhaps conserve water and provide, you know, continue to to provide water to that growth. Um, and then a num- number of them also have and think about the environment or think about how climate change is going to affect you or think about coordinating with other people perhaps in your area such that you aren't trying to all use the exact same sources of water. Um, yeah, so we were looking at a variety of different of those different plans across the Central Valley um, and seeing are they, how well are they coordinating, how well, um, how well are they thinking about water supply, about climate change, about protecting disadvantaged groups or socioeconomic, you know, the sort of socioeconomic side of water use and the environmental side of water
0: use. So, Nicola, Courtney, if I can jump in there, you, you mentioned, because when you're talking about all of these different plans, it starts to sound like a pretty crowded institutional space. And my Very mind starts, so. yeah, I start to think about what we were talking about earlier about collaboration, coordination, you know, do we need a meta plan, the plan to rule out plans to kind of figure out how people can play nicely together. You mentioned that you looked at like how this coordinated activity is happening. What did you find? Like, are, 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 are there conflicts between like cities and regional boards, et cetera?
1: So we found, um, we were were partly doing a a sort of case comparison between different watersheds within the Central Valley. So in particular between the American watershed, which is up around Sacramento and the King's watershed, which is down in the Fresno area. And um, we found there was a lot better coordination among all of the actors and and all of these different planning requirements um, in the American region versus the Fresno or sorry, in the Kings region. And um, we are, you know, we don't fully get into why this is happening. Um, We did do a bunch of interviews and my um, my PhD student is actually working through that right now, trying to think think through maybe some of the different challenges that these different regions are facing, Um, but one of the things that we partly hypothesize is that the um, American watershed is all much more surface water driven versus the King's watershed is much more groundwater driven. And that with the, when you have surface water, well, first of all, there's much more actually buying and selling of water among players within the watershed. So, Either they're all getting it from, you know, common Bureau of Reclamation sources, let's say, but they also have contracts with each other to exchange water or are, are coordinating essentially in that way.
0: And that doesn't exist um, as much for groundwater in California And for
1: groundwater. It's kind of, everybody is pumping. It's all the same aquifer, but they each just have their own wells and are, are not necessarily talking to each other. Um, and so it's kind of this assumption that, well,
0: you know,
1: we've always had groundwater and we'll continue to have groundwater going forward.
2: Mm-hmm. Which so, we know um, is changing
1: <laughs> and getting what? more
2: complicated, which is changing and getting more complicated, right? As you're now it adding is. the groundwater plans.
1: Yes, exactly. And it's actually interesting with that. So you bring up, this is the new Sustainable Groundwater Management Act or SIGMA, um, And, you know, in both of the King's Basin is in one of the more critically overdrafted areas. So they've had to develop groundwater sustainability plans. And even there, they, you know, the single aquifer fragmented into, I think seven different regions. And, you know, it's not clear to what extent those different groundwater sustainability agencies are actually coordinating with each other. You know, this was another set of plans that we looked at um, at, in that coordination
2: So something that really stood out to me in that um, in the collaborative governance paper that we were talking about with about all these plans was one Mm -hmm. of the figures, which this is really annoying on a podcast to talk about a figure, but maybe we can post it, um, post a link to it. So I think it was the third figure in the paper and you have like surface water on the top, groundwater on the bottom, these different basins, and then all of these entities with lines going everywhere. And it's, you know, it looks like a complicated figure to make, but also having worked in California, I feel like I can appreciate a little bit more that it was how complicated that, that process was to actually even identify all those entities where they're putting their straws into the ground and what, you know, what surface waters they're pulling from. And that's, um, and that's just for four of these, um, basins, basins of these surface water basins, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're thinking more, you know, about this, like fragmentation versus, um, coordination. And I don't, I don't know how you, um, you keep track of all of this, eh? (laughs) a, you know, keeping, making sense of, of who's doing what and how, and then overlaying all the different plans, recognizing that some of these entities are in some processes, but not others. And sometimes they have to coordinate, but other times they don't, um, and I'm curious of like just big picture, and this is something you might have addressed in the paper, but it might just be, you know, with your research broadly, do you feel like having all of these players and all of these overlapping processes, you know, does, are there some benefits to that, right? This is that like polycentricity, like do, are you getting some of the overlap? Does that, does that benefit the aquifer? Does it benefit the water sources versus, you know, that, um, more of a basin authority type structure, like mm-hmm. do the, it, does California just need to implement, like, like Michael was saying the one plan to rule them all, which I think was supposed to be the integrated processes, right? Like yes. that was supposed to integrate across these.
1: Yeah. I, um, that is a fabulous question. Um, and it's something I, when I, teach environmental governance I'm always having the students talking okay we've got this real tension here it's polycentricity versus fragmentation good versus where are the benefits what are the limitations and to be honest in the California system um I think that it's so fragmented and there's so much opera there's It has the real, the potential, I think, to have some of the benefits of a polycentric system in that you have, you know, the central mandate that says, okay, all of you local level folks, let's make some plans. Let's, you know, come up with new and innovative ways of managing your water essentially. Um, But then I don't see the interlinkages between either all of those local levels, trying to share information and learn from each other, which is where I think the benefit of polycentricity really comes from, or that work, that same sort of activity happening, being facilitated by the state. Then I think it's really just because the state ends up being pretty, none of the actors here have lot extra resources. We're talking about a bunch of government agencies. And so you know, the state doesn't have the capacity necessarily to share out what best practices are, and the local agencies themselves aren't either. They kind of write these plans because they're required to write these plans. Um, That's something that's come out of all of the interviews. It's like, we asked them, how do you use these plans? Like, well, we turned them in because we had the mandate. (laughs) That's not how we make decisions on a day-to-day basis to manage our system. and so I in my opinion, I think we're really more seeing the, the fragmentation side of the, of the theory playing out here, in that you have too many paper, too many players who are not well coordinated with each other. Um, and that's actually something that uh, there was some talk about when the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was passed that the question was, well, why, why do we need a new set of groundwater sustainability agencies when we already have integrated regional water management? Those regions set, couldn't those regions take over and say, okay, we're now going to also manage the groundwater in our area, uh, which would have re- reduced, the, um, reduced the amount of institutional complexity essentially. Um, but that didn't happen. And so instead they added on this new layer that are the groundwater sustainability agencies. And as I said, those ended up getting also very institutionally fragmented. They don't match the basins. And so they're, you know, I think it just kind of continually making things more and more complicated. Um, and then go out and write these plans and Another piece is, yeah, we don't know to what extent will these plans actually be implemented? To what extent will these plans actually shape um, more sustainable water management going forward? So I, that, I
2: think that's a really great point, and I want to follow up on that. But I first want to um, talk briefly about your managed aquifer recharge mm-hmm. paper that came out this year, because I feel like it's a really good example of what you just said in that you assess these, you, this is the groundwater sustainability plans in terms of their, so they have to, you know, put forward these um, projects and management actions for how they're gonna achieve sustainability at the basin scale, right? Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is bigger in many cases than the agency scale. And yet what you find is that um, they don't often consider, how much water is going to be available and who's going to pull from that pot. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So everybody's saying we're going to recharge water into our aquifer. That's how we're going to achieve sustainability. We'll, you know, continue pumping, but add water back in. So we'll balance out the the bank account, if you will. Um, Yeah. But there's, they're not considering there's so much, only so much surface water to go around and there's not, there's not enough of, of it to actually fill up all of the, managed aquifer recharge projects. And, and it's one where I think if there were better coordination, they would perhaps know that.
0: <laughs> so that reminds me of, I feel like this is a pretty common narrative in the field. And Nicola, I'm interested in if whether or not you think this reflects what I, this narrative I'm about to describe is in lieu of more thorny political collective action to actually change what we're doing more fundamentally, say reduce fewer, you know, reduce our use of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, we say, well, no, we can find more stuff. We can, we can get it from somewhere else, and this comes everywhere, right? So, I was recently teaching a class on the Green New Deal, and part of the, that discourse is, oh, can we actually ramp up? renewables fast enough to replace fossil fuels. And then other people are saying, why do you assume that we need to be using all the energy that we're currently using in the first place? It's not renewables job to even ramp up that much. We need to actually do more with less. Does this, Mm -hmm. does your conclusions in that paper map on to some narrative like that?
1: So we haven't, we don't really touch on that specific question in that paper, um, we're we're trying to be a little bit more agnostic that says, okay, if if the goal is sustainability as they're defining it in the GSPs, um, then is their proposed use of managed aquifer recharge going to get them there? Um, And we argue water availability and legal concerns and financing and a number of reasons, probably not. I am, you know, personally, I've always been more on the we need to use less side. Um, and so this is something, for instance, with desalination that comes up that's like, well, do we really need to just open up ourselves to a whole new source of water? Or can we learn to live with the water that we currently, you know, can we at least just limit ourselves to the freshwater sources on land or, um, you know. Otherwise, or same thing. Okay. We're going to go to Mars and go destroy a whole other planet. Great. Um,
0: Right. We'll find something else to use to punt on our problems. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, it's interesting because I feel like, well, something that I wanted to comment on earlier is I feel like your your, um, training, including some engineering is um, I think, well, probably a really great asset in working in water. Mm-hmm. But something that I often find in, you know, interdisciplinary settings, especially around water, is there's a this mentality and this, you know, it's like, you know, this is the kind of classic trope reading Cadillac Desert, <laughs> too. It's like, you know, it's all about the the myth of building and bigger and better and controlling, right? But I think, you know, some of that plays out in the way that water issues are approached from an engineering discipline If like it's a structural change that we may need to address. And so little of it focuses on demand management. You know, so I feel like some of the engineering is starting to go that way in terms of the monitoring and the feedback. So how do we engineer systems so that we can account for demand and respond to it? But I feel like as a, an, an industry, there's more of this emphasis on like, how do we solve the problems and, and engineer our, our systems, as opposed to how do we account for decisions and behaviors, you know, at the, before you even get to the pipe, you know?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, I think it's a little bit what Michael said in terms of that's the harder problem to solve. You know, we're really good at the technology fix. We're really good at the the engineering fix and getting people to change their behavior and figuring out how to change institutions and norms and beliefs. And all of that is really, really hard. Um, and I, I also would point to right now COVID. You know, this is not water related, but the U.S. did absolutely terribly when what we needed to do was wear masks and stay home what we did fantastic was roll out a vaccine and you know get it in the shots of as many people as possible and you know contrast that with let's say our counterparts in Europe who did I think much better at the first part and are perhaps struggling on the second Um, and I think, you know, that, and water is absolutely another place where that comes into play that, you know, for people to use less water for, you know, I live here in Southern California where we are, should be in the chaparral. I should not be looking out across the street and seeing a bunch of green lawns, um, but, we now expect that of course it's gonna be green and of course we're gonna have large trees and we you know, we kind of deserve this. Um, and to then take away that water becomes really, really hard and to encourage people to zero escape or put in drought tolerant plants or get rid of their swimming pool, et cetera, et cetera is, is really hard. Um, and so, yes, we have gotten more and more efficient over time. And you look at water demands or particularly urban water demands in California have gotten much more efficient per capita, but population is still growing and we are still continuing to extract lots of water.
2: Because yeah. It's hard to
1: change people's behavior.
2: <laughs> so so I want to transition from that to thinking about these plans. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but you know the plans are these planning processes are about trying to um, lay out plans about you know, how to change behavior and systems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they, as you said before, there are these mandated processes. In some cases, like the integrated regional water management there, not mandatory. They're right. They're sort of a, a voluntary regional process, mm-hmm. but what something I've really struggled with in my work, working on the sustainable groundwater management plans is what is a plan and what does it do? Right? Like what, mm-hmm. what can I look at a plan for, and what can I take away from it? And I'd love to, you to answer that for me. <laughs>
1: I, I, um, so I actually in working on this project, my, my student I kept coming to me with the similar question of like, what is what's going on with these things? And like, everybody I'm talking to in these interviews says they don't actually use them. What's going on? So I actually wrote a paper.
2: Oh, great. It's kind
1: of critique. Send me the paper. <laughs> um, it's unfortunately <laughs> has been rejected at two journals and I haven't, and I'm, you know, haven't gotten it back out the door, so I don't know when it'll actually be published, but I can share, share the version with you. <laughs> but it's interesting in terms of, you know, we, we're, we look back at the original um, statutes that require all of these different plans to be written and trying to understand what is the motivation of the legislature in saying this is the best way. You know, there's a lot of ways we can manage water. But they're saying the best way to manage water is to write this plan and come up with perhaps, you know, propose actions that will get you to be more sustainable or conserve better, water better, or things like that. And in a lot of cases, the original statute is kind of tautological. It's planning is good. And in, in some cases, it literally was, like for the agricultural water management plans, their justification was, well, cities have to do it. So irrigation districts should too. (laughs) And, you know, and so I, I still, I completely share your, your kind of skepticism with this of, we have all this time and energy going into writing these plans and the, the planning literature more generally points to the fact that tons of plans as written are not implementable, that they don't have good information on who's responsible or what timelines for for implementation will look like or whether there's enough funding or things like that. And we don't really know how often plans are implemented. And so, you know, it's it's kind of this interesting puzzle that, from, we continue using them as a good tool for managing the environment. And yet, you know, we really don't know what they do. Um, other than force people to come together and and do some planning. And so, you know, there are, I'm sure there is some learning and thinking and you have to sit down and measure how much of the resource there is and how it's changing over time. And, you know, look at demand and supply and all of that, but, than if the actions that are proposed in that plan are never actually implemented. It does beg the question of why we continue to do it.
2: It's it is a bizarre process, it feels like. Um, and it's even more bizarre to try to study it. Right. <laughs> because mm-hmm. you think about all of the time and energy that's put in up front to write these plans. And then you know all of us out here reading them and analyzing them and trying to glean something from them. Um, but inherent in a plan too, is that it's for the future. And so we won't know if it is successful for a while. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that means that there's many time steps in the future at which somebody could decide whether or not to follow the plan. Right. Exactly. Um, which is challenging. And so another piece of that, that I'd, I'd curious to hear about your experiences, you know, when you're looking at, um, at what these plans say they're going to do, how they're going to solve a problem. um, How do you, how do you analyze that?
1: So I, I generally, and this is, following some best practices heard from there's a plan evaluation literature, um, but it's kind of a deductive, so top-down coding process. So it's to come up with, well, what do we think the plans should be doing? So, and that can be based off of what the literature says is best practice, or this can be off of, I mentioned, for instance, the actual statutory guidance that says, oh, if you're doing a groundwater sustainability plan, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, And then, so it's coming up with those categories and seeing, reading through the plan and saying, do, how adequately does the plan do X, or does this particular section of the plan do X? Um, So something that, for instance, uh, is you're you're looking at I know is looking at for instance do they think about climate change, and so this you know it could be as simple as does the plan ag- acknowledge or discuss the potential impact of climate change on water supplies in their region, and it can be a yes no, or um, in other cases we've looked at you know actual. Proportion of the document, perhaps. So, a plan that thinks more about climate change will have sentences about climate change, you know, represent a greater fraction of the document than a plan that has one sentence that says climate change is a thing. Um, then, it, where it gets really interesting is when you have plans that actually, let's say, talk about climate change but make false claims. <laughs> And this is when I'm thinking about, um, one of the, I think it was an urban water management plan in our study that literally said, we're, um, you know, they said climate change, we're not expecting our water supply to be affected by climate change because we use groundwater, you know, and groundwater will basically, will always be available. Like, well, yes, kind of on some time scales, but um, you know, and so it's there. And that also gets back to some of the questions about the value of planning. If they can make claims like that, that are perhaps questionable, but aren't, um, are not, not, pun- I don't want to say punished, but that that's not called out, say by the regulatory agency that's requiring the plan. But, yeah. So but, that's the yeah. Way how I've gone about analyzing the plans is kind of looking at, okay, what are they? what are they doing? And then also some about how they are doing it.
2: One of the things that I, um, that I thought was really cool about your work was the text analysis that you've been doing. Um, And, you know, these planning documents are thousands and thousands of pages. And I think that's a really cool approach Mm -hmm. to try to to get at what's in the document, but then you also have, you know, as you mentioned, the interpretation of like, what are people actually saying and how are they thinking about it? But it does open up this new world. You know, it's like the big data of planning which
1: Mm -hmm, is a
2: little silly. Yeah.
1: And Um, I, I guess I will say I've done actually both approaches. So the, the work on the central Valley is actually going through and reading every sentence by hand and hand coding it um, but then, as you mentioned, also doing some big, big data work where you train a model to identify, you know, whether it's often of word searches or other approaches to identify this sentence is about climate change, this sentence is about fish, and then categorize. Yeah, how many sentences in a document are about different topics? Hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: So. I'm curious, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the planning and a lot about um, where you've been coming from.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So what's what's next for you? What are you working on? Um, what are you excited about in the future?
1: Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, specifically on water in California, I have to actually admit, I'm not totally sure what's next. So we're wrapping up a couple of projects, a couple of papers that are out of this, this project. Um, so I mentioned, for instance, that we did a bunch of interviews with water managers. And so are analyzing those and looking at, you know, how they're thinking about the problems of water management that they're facing and what some of the key challenges and opportunities that they're facing are. Um, and, also doing some work on, um, a little bit more work on actually the plan analysis itself. Um, Other though, a lot of my ongoing next projects are outside of that space. So I mentioned some work on coastal water, coastal management. So looking at coastal sediment management and sort of the regulatory um, challenges and engineering challenges of managing our coastlines better under climate, under sea level rise, Um, I am also have a large project looking at environmental impact statements. So the National Environmental Planning or Environmental, yeah, NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act. I have planning in my head. Um, And so similar work to the plan analysis, but looking at NEPA documents and thinking about, okay, what are they what are they managing for how well are they thinking about let's say climate change or environmental justice um and thinking about where to, whether we see trends over time and space um, in those types of documents um so those are those are i think a few of my major projects that i'm involved in right now um, and then also on the collaborative governance side i'm in um, part of a team that's doing some um, there's that assembled a a database for larger, larger, not large end, but larger end case comparisons, looking at collaborative governance, how it happens around the world. So yeah, a variety of different things underway. Um, I was
0: holding my breath waiting for you to mention Taos and it hasn't come up yet.
1: It hasn't. And I, yeah, I, I really do want to make it happen. And I just, I have so much on my plate that I, I need to make some space. First, sure, I mean fair perhaps. enough. Yeah, yeah. I was actually in a conversation last week and possibly, maybe thinking about some work um, in the Core Corners region on um, renewable energy siting, of course. Um, so that is all on, on water, but um, that would at least get me a little bit closer to home. But mm. that's a, a long ways off.
2: So I know we're almost at the end of the hour. Um, I have a follow-up question from earlier, but Michael, I wanted to give you a chance. Did you have anything you want to jump in on?
0: You know, oh goodness. I don't know how to ask one with like the 10 minutes we have left without blowing it up. And um, I mean, if let's, let's, let me say the question and then we can maybe pretend I didn't say it if we don't want to, we don't (laughs) want to go down that path. I mean, I'm just really interested in this, the, the approach that you're framing as, as being more from the public administration perspective of kind of starting with a policy or a plan or some formality and I, first, I and then going from there. And so you start from there and then you kind of branch out and get kind of more social ecological as you go. I mean, as Courtney was talking about this figure three, I pulled it back up and it's just marvelous. And I, it's, it's so obnoxious for us to be talking about it without anyone <laughs> being able to see it. Um, but it looks really to me like a social ecological system. It's like a very nice paradigm. Like I think it should be in a textbook of like, Hey, if you want to like think about groundwater management and and surface water as like a social ecological system, this is how you do it. And it's just a very interesting comparison to my own experiences where I start with resource users. And then I start to think about policy in so far as the resource users are impacted by that policy but I don't start with the documents. And honestly, when I talk to people like Chris Weibel, who do this also, this kind of stuff too, of like coding formal documents, I just start to like sweat a little bit. It just sounds so daunting to me. It's like, I'm, it's, you know, God bless you. Um, do you, how much do you think about, um, one way to characterize this difference is, and feel free to push back on this characterization because I'm kind of experimenting with it starting with the formalities versus starting with the more informal bits. So I don't start with stuff that's written, I start with just talking to people. And you know, I'm aware that you, you also framed yourself as being anthropologish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I know you have some of these sensitivities. Uh, do you think much about this? I don't know if I wanna call it attention, but the relationship between the formality and informality, given my understanding that you start more with the formalities and you spend a lot of time in formal weeds.
1: So I spend, I do, I do definitely spend a lot more time in the formal weeds. A lot of my questions start though, from the informal. And so it's from conversations with resource users or with practitioners, with regulators around different social ecological spaces. Um, So I'll, I'll mention the sediment management one, for instance where we um, were, and this is actually came out of an engineering colleague who was like, hey, we need to look at sediment, coastal sediment fluxes. And it'd be great to add in the management side of things. I don't know how to do that, help. Um, And so there we did a number of interviews and focus groups and really trying to get a sense of, okay, what is, what is the sediment social ecological system and how, how are we managing it? What are we, you know, what are we trying to, what are perhaps some of the, the problems that will limit it from being more adaptive under sea level rise and as, you know, urbanization happens, et cetera. And then with that started seeing, okay, there's, some key regulatory sort of cut points that we perhaps need to dive into in, you know, in the clean water act and things like that. Um, And also looking at um, understanding land use as one of the key triggers for how much sediment is coming to the system that then got me thinking, okay, well land use that's managed by land use plans. So now I have a team of undergraduates that's coding land use plans to think about, look at how do they talk about sediment. So that's kind of a, you know, we're starting from the informal space to then get at these into the formal policy documents. Um, And there's, you know, a number of other projects where it's looking, talking and and realizing, oh, permit, obtaining permits is the key limiting factor here. Okay, let's dive into the permitting requirements and really try to understand how, what features sort of from almost a legal perspective, are limiting that process, as well as how those features are then implemented by the regulators and interpreted by the people applying for permits, etc. So it, it's, it's really an interplay between the two, I think, for my work.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like the way, I mean, it sounds like the best way to do it, right? I mean, I, I've been sensitized to be wary of over formalization at the expense of thinking about informality. So that's partly where I'm coming from. But Yeah. I mean, ultimately I think the kind of iterative back and forth is kind of how you have to do it. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly. And then there are some too, that I come at that it's, there's this requirement, the EIS one, for instance, that didn't start from interviews that started from, there's a requirement that everyone has to go through. Let's end hasn't surprisingly actually hasn't been studied all that much in terms of what's actually in these documents. I think partly because they're thousand page documents, it's annoying to read them.
0: Um, annoying is a so, good word for it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Difficult. You know, and, but so that's where we started. And then now are diving into the conversations with practitioners and with community groups to understand how those requirements you know, how do they actually write the documents and how does public participation play out and things like that. So yeah, the interplay. Yeah, it's interesting
2: talking to you is making me think more about how plans are sort of this, um, and maybe this is more obvious as I say it, <laughs> are, are, you know, this sort of perfect ex- place to look at how uh, rules on paper become rules in use or, mm-hmm. or not. But also the opposite, right? Do you get the rules in use into the rules on paper through collaboration and coordination as well? Um, and I hadn't really thought about that coming into the plans, too, right? Like, how do you? What influences the plans versus what's the output of the plans?
1: Absolutely, yes. And, and I, I really like looking at, at that whole system. Yeah. How did you? How did? everything in the plan come to be what science was was informed what what people were involved in that process how much collaboration or disagreement was there over that and then what does it do on the other end Mm
2: -hmm. well we'll wait um maybe the 10 to 20 years for the other end and then we'll check back in (laughs) no no, just kidding Um, Nicola, it's really great to chat with you. Thank you so much for for sharing on your work and background. Um, Excited to chat with you more in the future.
1: Absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful to chat with you. And thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. The Income and Podcast has been associated with the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC, and the International Journal of the Commons, or IJC, for the last several months now. In addition to developing our relationships with each of these organizations, we have been expanding our own team in the last month or so. We now have an official blog editor, Pranita Mudliar, an assistant professor of environmental studies and science from Ithaca College. Moving forward, we plan on publishing a more regular series of blog posts that will complement our mostly weekly podcast episodes. You can access each of our blog posts at our website, incomingpodcast.org.